All right, we're looking at God's Word. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on singing has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes, peace, makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. God. Yes, let's seek the Lord's help in understanding this word um, by praying. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. We know that it is a word we need. And it's from this word that eternity hangs in the balance. And so we pray that we would hear this word, that we would understand this word, and that we would believe this word. Alter the power of your Holy Spirit who impresses the truthfulness of this word upon our hearts and grants us tremendous conviction. May that be our experience and may it bring us clarity and may we be able to live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Who would have thought that there would be so much controversy over the nutritional value of the egg, right? That little thing <laughs> seems so harmless, but it's like such a puzzle for many people. And what I'm talking about is there was a time when the egg, eating the egg was good for you, and then there was a time when it was bad for you, and now it seems like it's okay for you, right? No more than two eggs a day. Then it was, don't have more than one egg a day. Don't eat the yolk. There's good cholesterol. There's bad cholesterol. Now eat eggs in moderation. You know, we thought that science had the answers, but the answers kept changing, right? <laughs> are eggs really bad for you, though? If they are, well, then we have a black market of eggs in, in our church right now. <laughs> All right? We have egg paraphernalia all around us. Are eggs bad for you? I'll let you do the research for yourself. But the only way that we're really going to know is when we have a full body of knowledge, right? <laughs> Which is what science is pursuing, but they're not quite there yet. 
I, I, I mentioned that because in a similar way, you know, we turn to the church for answers. It seems like the church might give us answers to the questions of life, but sometimes it seems like the church and its answers keep changing. Like, do we really know the truth? There's this phenomenon of a trendy Christianity. And let me just take you some of the, through some of the trends. Maybe you're, you'll recognize them, right? There was a time a while ago where there was the charismatic church, and that was what the church was all about, where it seemed like the spirit was moving in supernatural ways, and so it had to be true. There was the megachurch, the high-energy atmosphere church um, that attracted many people. I mean, who can argue with that kind of success, right? And there was the health and wealth prosperity gospel church. Then there was the I'll help you feel better about yourself practical therapeutic church. And now there's the social justice woke church. It's fascinating with this last one. Woke ideology is sweeping through all of society like a broke dam. It's even taken down the, the outspoken movement. You remember that movement called New Atheism? You know, uh, it was championed by Richard Dawkins. He had that book, The God Delusion. And then there were three others, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. They were called the Four Horsemen, and they were like the unofficial spokesmen for New Atheism. But where are they now? We don't hear about them much anymore, do we? Well, it happens that they were white males, and so it was only a matter of time before they said white male things and got canceled. Yes, even being anti-God is not good enough for the wokesters. They've taken over weak churches, mainline denominations. These poor little Bambi-like fawns, these churches. It's where their stone buildings have become tombstones, really. And the thing is, little has changed, actually. I mean, because John is writing to a very similar situation. He's warning the church against false teachers. Look at verse 7 in chapter 3, 1 John 3, 7. Little children, little children let no one deceive you. Okay? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He's got to correct. John's got to correct false teachings. The false teachers have done some damage, and so John is writing to rehabilitate, rehabilitate the church back to health. And what that health is, is a faith that will last. Remember last week in the passage previously, we saw that there were false teachers. They went out from us because they were not of us, right? We want a faith that will last. And so John wants to help insecure Christians who've been affected, influenced by the false teachers. And he helps them by being gentle with them, but also very clear and firm with them. John wants the Christians to grow in confident Christian living. And that can only happen when they are resting on the unchanging truth of God, not the trends of God. And so... I've got three points for us to help us understand what John is trying to do in this passage. First one, abiding that leads to confidence. Abiding that leads to confidence. Look at verse 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Right? Abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shame. 
Christians love to think about abiding. We find the thought of abiding in God comforting. That God's with us, that he's not rejected us, he'll take care of us. But more than just comforting, if it's only that, if it's just nice feelings, then that's just like a cat wanting to be stroked. Just being comforted like that, that's not going to lead to lasting confidence. See, the truth is that abiding in Christ, in God, should lead to confidence. And the question is how? Well, it's a confidence that we can have when Jesus appears. That when he returns, we will all face him. No one's going to avoid this final encounter. We're all going to die and face accountability. And will you stand? Or, or will you be turned away in shame when Jesus calls everyone to account? See, will you be recognized by Jesus because you've been abiding in him? See, because that's our sure destiny, and that is meant to give us confidence. But it's about abiding in him. That's where our confidence comes from. That's where our confidence is tested at the very end and how we know it's true. See, John is continuing on from the previous passage where we need to remember what abiding in Christ looks like. 1 John 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. What is abiding? It's having been anointed by the Holy One and having knowledge. What is this knowledge? It's, that what, it's what Jesus taught the apostles who then passed it on. It's called the gospel and it's not what the false teachers are teaching, but what the apostles have passed on. And with that knowledge came the Spirit's anointing, which is him present with us, where he gets us to believe the gospel testimony of the apostles. See, this gospel is certain and gives us full confidence for the end. What do they say about the only sure things about it in life, right? Death and taxes. And with both, we're going to be accountable. We're accountable with the government for our taxes, and we're accountable with God at our death. And abiding Christ is our only sure way of facing accountability. With confidence, not with shame. And it's like the way that John puts it, it's like we're going to see Jesus and we'll be like, finally, yes, it's not going to be uh, when I see Jesus, am I in, am I not in? But because I've been abiding in him from the beginning, I'm going to be abiding with him right to the end. You know, the confidence of the end time when Jesus appears, it's the same confidence that we can have now because the confidence is in the same thing, which doesn't change. Jesus, his gospel, the Spirit's power. That's why when we look forward, it's not pie in the sky, it's not pie when I die, but pie for when I abide, okay? What does your daily abiding look like? Does it give you confidence? See? What's trendy might seem immediately impactful, but it won't give us lasting confidence. We need to abide in Jesus, but what does that look like? Are we acknowledging him? daily. And not just him, but it could look as simple as acknowledging 
the Holy Spirit. That's a, that could be abiding, abiding with Jesus and the Spirit. The Spirit is with us, and we're saying, yes, I acknowledge I am with you. Or we specifically, verbally, prayerfully acknowledge the Spirit's presence because his presence is the true anointing where he causes me to look to Jesus, to believe his gospel. It's how he worked in me in the beginning and how he continues to work with me to the end. Abiding leads to confidence, or so it should, but it's still hard to feel that sometimes. And it seems like John is aware of this struggle, so he follows up with a very strong word of encouragement. And that's our second point, love that leads to hope. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, continuing on. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we, shall be called, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see how John, he, he breaks out in praise and wonder for what Jesus really means for us. It's the Father's love that he has shown us, given to us. And that love opens me up to a whole new future. And it amounts to real hope. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Do we see the love that the Father has given to us? What is that love? It was the cost of adopting us into his family, which Jesus paid for us. Right? The Father's love given to us that we should be called the children of God. That's our adoption. The, the family planning practice of adoption, that is not cheap. It's not easy because redeeming lives never is something so simple. And people do it because it adds so much joy um, to their lives. And there's so much excitement thinking about the, the life that, we're, that has been brought in and what is in store for them. So much more with divine adoption. There's a helpful phrase that sums it up for us. The Son of God became man, so man could become sons of God, right? Mankind could become sons and daughters of God through the shed blood of Jesus, the costly price of divine adoption. Now, if we truly understand the Father's love shown to us in Jesus, then we'll love him back to the point of wanting to be like him. See, like that's a real sign of love. More than just feelings, it's this conviction about what I know to be true and beautiful. He has loved me, I acknowledge that, and I'm loving him back. And if we love Jesus and the compassion that he has showed us, then we'll be like that more. If we're drawn to Jesus' wisdom, then we'll be like that more for the sake of bringing glory to God. If we're drawn to Jesus' power, then we'll exercise that power more and more in humble sacrifice. See, it's not just his truth that is awesome. It's also his beauty. That's what captivates us. That's what draws us to him, what we love. It's a beautiful thought. In fact, the way that John put this responsive love for the Father is 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay? I see my future, having been adopted into the family of God, 
I have hope in the real person of Jesus. And so a real response comes from that real sight. One commentator said that vision leads to assimilation. I see him, I want to become like him. I need to point and stress out that what we see is not fantasy, it's not my own imagined conception, but the Father's love shown to us is the person of Jesus. Let me explain why I have to say this, because this is meant to strengthen our conviction. If we're honest, there are times when living out the faith, it doesn't seem to satisfy. It seems hard to sometimes try to live out the faith. In fact, we're the children of God adopted into the family. We're like all meant to be together. And as a church, we're meant to encourage one another, but sometimes the church can discourage one another. We can get disappointed. We can lose hope. It could be the church, or it could just be disappointments from unmet expectations. And it's important for John that he preserves hope and what our hope is in. What does he point us to? It's in John's situation, it's so important that he corrects false teaching that the church has been exposed to. And so what is this correction that would be our true hope that he would preserve? I wonder if you notice the irony of verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Honestly, I can't see anything, right? Well, John wrote that deliberately because he's countering false teachers who taught that it did not matter that Jesus came in the flesh. What did we see last week? 1 John 2.22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist, he, he who denies the Father and the Son. See, for these false teachers, the focus was on their secret knowledge, not on Jesus who came in the flesh. And what was the basis for their secret knowledge? Well, nothing substantial. Whereas for the church, the gospel of the apostles, it was based on the real person of Jesus. That's our sure hope. That's what John has to impress upon the church, and it's a word and message for us to re receive as well. Jesus is the real person, and he is our sure hope. Just go back to the very beginning, 1 John 1, 1, how he began the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I'm not saying anything crazy here. Just that Jesus was a real man of history. He lived, he died, and the testimony of the apostles is that he rose again from the dead. The historical reliability of Jesus' resurrection is the evidence that he was a real man, that his claims were true, that he was the Messiah, and so therefore he paid for sins, he fulfilled God's promises, he adopted believers into the family of God. And that was sealed for us when the Spirit came to anoint believers. We have real hope, and we can be confident that our future is just as real as Jesus, who appeared in the flesh. Jesus is our hope. 
That's what Paul is, um, John is impressing upon the believers, correcting their thinking, fighting against the false teaching, and it's a reminder for us that our confidence is found in Jesus, our hope is found in Jesus. We've been adopted into his family, and together we're making our way to the end. Jesus is our hope, and he powers through, he plows down all of our disappointments and discouragements in life. You know, the only way to handle discouragements and disappointments is if we have hope to keep going, right? Hope to get back up. And we have that real hope. It's not going to lead us to shame, but confidence. In fact, this is the way John puts it, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What we will be has not yet appeared. See, that is the reality that all of us are accepting, that I won't fully realize all the changes and improvements and things that I'm hoping for in my life. I may not appear fully the way that I want. We may be disappointed with ourselves, with God, with others. But what if Jesus is not disappointed with you? That's what the end will prove. It will show us that my lack isn't the end of me. And so we need to know that God does not change, but our hopes can. And so we are to return to our sure hope. And the Father's love in Jesus See what kind of love the Father has shown us. It's meant to command all our hopes in life, where we can say to our dashed hopes, heal, calm down, you can't overwhelm me, you can't bring me down. Abide in him and hope in him. That is what true love gives us. And that leads to our final point, victory that leads to practice. You know, in life, the way that things work is that practice leads to victory, right? That's how we know we've made it. A lot in life is a competition, and so that's the way it goes. Practice, practice, practice. But for the church, we're not in a competition against one another. If anything, we already have the victory, and that's why we practice together. And what is that victory? For some Christians, it might be health and wealth. For other Christians, it might be self-esteem and the blessings that life would generally go well for me. But for John, what is the victory? It is righteousness. 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? If we're of God, if we're the children, then we will practice righteousness. We will be like our Heavenly Father. And what's important for us to know as I talk about righteousness and the practice of righteousness is that it is, first of all, a belief before it is a behavior. And here's what I mean by that. Um, righteousness, first, let's be clear, it's, it's a real behavior, it's not imagined. We can't pretend that there's fruit. 
Righteousness changes us so that we live rightly, right? But we also have to know that it has to start with real belief. And the belief is that we have a power over us. We're not independent people. Either Jesus is my, power, my Lord or the devil is. And the belief that we're living by is that Jesus has won the victory over the devil. We have victory already, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Right? Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's the victory. And we've got to believe that in order to experience it. Now, we're practicing righteousness. That's what it means to be in the family of God. It's like a glorious thing. We should all love the thought that we can practice righteousness. Does that excite us or does that discourage us, though? Because if we're honest, sometimes it can make us feel guilty. And not just that. You know, the way John writes, he just like kind of gives it to you straight. And so that could also make it worse for us. He seems so direct and um, scary. Just look, for instance, we've come across this many times with John, but here, even here, verse 6, 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sin sinning has either seen him or known him. And we think, wait, when we read that, I'm like, I sin. I keep on sinning. Does that mean I don't know Jesus? We read verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And you're thinking, wait, I, I, I practice sinning, it seems like. So does that mean I'm of the devil? This is how we might potentially process, you know, these condemning thoughts, right? And so we want to work through, like, how do, we make, how do we make sense of what John is trying to say here? Because if we can, we'll see that it's actually helpful for us. Let me explain why John writes this way. Several reasons. First, John is countering the confusion caused by the false teachers. You could tell how much damage that the false teachers have done if they have convinced the church that sin and righteousness did not matter. See, that's why he's saying all these things, right? It's strange, but maybe it's not that strange when Christians think of righteousness as a burden as a guilty thing, when it's actually meant to be the most amazing way to live. And honestly, though, I can find myself thinking like that, too. Righteousness, it just kind of bears down on me. I believe Jesus came in the flesh to save me from my sins, but life gets messy, it gets complicated. Sin starts to get normalized, and it's easier to settle than to practice righteousness. It's confusion. John cuts through all of that. Another reason why John writes like that is because he has to make very clear about the absolute basics. Look at verse 4. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. These verses, verses 4 and 5, it might sound obvious. It might sound refreshing. But hopefully it will not sound strange to us, right? Third reason John writes this way, whatever tension we might feel when we read verses like that, 
why John speaks so bluntly and directly is that this tension has to get resolved not by me, but by the power over me. If it's God the Father who sent his son Jesus, then we will recognize why Jesus was sent. To deal with the devil's bondage and the life of sin that people were trapped in. If we're born of God, then we will believe Jesus has won the victory and destroyed the works of the devil so that we can be free to practice righteousness. And so what it all means is that if we do believe Jesus won the victory, we'll actually try to live righteously and keep at it. Right? If we didn't believe that Jesus already won the victory, then it would be a quick fight. We would lose very quickly, and so we would not try any further. But Jesus is victorious, and that means we can fight and stay in the fight, sin after sin, loss after loss, because I'm looking to him. He's got the victory. He gives the grace and forgiveness. I mean, just think about it. The fact that I even try to fight for righteousness, that is evidence that I believe Jesus is victorious, isn't it? We need to be reassured by that. And then just lastly, the, maybe, hopefully, this clarification will clear up any remaining confusion. It's like, are we practicing sinning or are we practicing righteousness? It seems like we're doing both, but let's be clear about what we're doing. We might sin a lot. We might think we're practicing sin, but we're not. Practicing sin is like, we're not trying to get better at sin, right? No, we're trying to get better at not sinning. What we're trying to practice is repentance more, is confession more. That's the practice that defines us. And so John doesn't want us to dabble where we stand in relation to sin. He wants us to be clear. In fact, just think about it. It would be so unhelpful for John if he said something like this. Yeah, you know what? Fighting sin is hard. Do your best. Try not to feel guilty. Jesus will understand and accept you. It kind of sounds how, like how we might talk and how we might justify ourselves. And, what, and yet, what is, do we realize what it does for us? It doesn't build up real conviction. What it does is where we start to rely on our rationalization, not on Jesus, we start to undermine Jesus and we diminish his victory. It's like we're trying to win victory in the, the least pressured kind of way. What are we practicing? Are we developing the practice of making sure what we believe first before we try to perfect behavior? That we have the victory and that's why we can live righteously. That's why we can live the life of blessing. And if we press into this, we'll face the practice of righteousness more boldly. Why? Because I have Jesus. I have this secure future. And that means I can deal with sin. I can know that my future is not in jeopardy. What does that mean? See, what righteous act will I pursue because I'm not going to be at a loss? That's the lie that we're often caught believing. If I practice righteousness, then I will lose out. Life will not go easy for me. It's easier to lie. It's easier to cheat. It's easier to skim. It's easier to ignore, right? 
What's the saying? Choose the harder right over the easy wrong. That is so hard to do. But we can do it with the victory of Jesus. The bonds have been broken. We can actually pursue a life of righteousness without condemnation. And so are there any practices of righteousness that we need to resume? People to care for, ways to serve, integrity of character to work on, holding yourself to God's objective standard, not your own convenient standard. John is trying to help the church. There we have it. Science might keep changing. It's because they don't know the end. And we can put some faith in science, but our full faith is in God's plan where the end has already been written. John is rehabilitating the spiritual health of the church by encouraging the church to believe these basic truths that we've gone over. Where he tries to make things clear so that it would lead to real conviction. And that's how the church will last till the end, to meet the Father and the Son. It's just like how we began. I saw the video of the woman who swam from Cuba to Florida. 110 miles in open water. She did it in 53 hours. I just noticed that Netflix had the film about her too, Diana Nyad. But if you see the real clip, you see that she has just finished the swim. Um, she was delirious. She was pretty done for. She's barely standing as she's trying to walk up onto the shore, right? And there are crowds of people all around her to receive her, and they're all making a way for her to finish. They're trying to keep, stay clear so that no one helps her, right? And she's trying to stumble to the finish line to um, officially complete the swim. Gentle wave comes, and it just like laps upon her, and she falls down because she's got nothing left in her. She gets back up to try to like, keep moving, and all the while, people have created this circle around her. Now, she needed personal conviction within herself that it could be done to even think about accomplishing a feat like that, right? And the thing is, she made that attempt 28, when she was 28 years old. She failed, and so she stopped swimming. But then she got new life in her. Oh, yeah, did I mention that she was 61 when she actually completed this? She had this renewed conviction that she had to do it and she had this hope that she could do it. And that's why she tried it. And of course, it wasn't like she just jumped in the water and started kicking. She had a whole team, a boat, crew, charting currents, coach, a medic. She had to swim it alone, but she couldn't do it alone. That's just the kind of picture of the conviction that the Father has given each one of us when he has adopted us into his family, so that we would embark on this journey of faith with Jesus. Through this life, to the end, with all hope. Because Jesus is our hope. We press on together, worshiping, which focuses our attention on the one. Encouraging each other to look to our true hope. He's a powerful hope that commands and overrules all my lesser hopes, all my failures, all my disappointments all my disappointments and discouragements. All that he has given to us, 
means that as the benediction that I often say goes, he will surely do it. He will get us to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faith that you have given to us in Jesus. Thank you that just as he died and rose again and is now with you, that that is our journey and path as well. And it's a difficult one, and oftentimes we can get discouraged or disappointed, but thank you for the grace that you show us, that we have your love, that we have your adoption, that we have your abiding, all these wonderful resources of grace and power for us. And so help us, O oh God, to stay on this journey, to see the end, to know that we have all the hope that we need to make it, because there you are, Jesus. We look to you, our, our, our pioneer, our forerunner of the faith, our salvation, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>